Welcome to Backyard Philosophy, a podcast where a couple friends grab some cold ones, sit around the fire, and talk about science, philosophy, and history. Crack one open, sit back, and get a good laugh as we discuss everything from automation to why the meaning of life is 42. We're going to be finishing up our talk about the philosophy of forestry and the United States. Super excited to talk about trees, but before we get too into it, Mike, how you doing? What are you drinking? I am doing fantastic. The sun's out. I'm drinking some whiskey and talking to a good friend. Nick, what about you? What are you drinking? Still working on some Coors Light, and I'm going to need you to keep me on topic if I get too off topic. So we finished up talking about uh, Jay Storling Morton. And now I'm going to just quickly talk about Lincoln, during his presidency, signed the Yosemite Land Grant that preserved 3,900 acres in California, or uh, in what will later become Yosemite National Park. And it was then under the control of the California government for the people. But that set the stage for the creation of national parks as we know them today. And we're going to talk about the U.S. Forestry Commission. And this is kind of this is the formation of the national parks, national forest, but we didn't have a name or an idea for it yet. So I'm going to introduce a bunch of characters, and then we're going to have a meet. Charles Sprague Sargent. He wrote a book, essentially a census, on the trees of North America in 1884. He worked with Frederick Law Olmsted, the park designer, and he was one of the first to say we need to protect the forest because the forests protect the streams and we drink out of the rivers and the streams. And he wanted the state of New York to create a forestry commission to manage the land to protect the drinking water. He also proposed a tax on timber to slow the cutting of timber in New York. And at this time, if landowners did not pay the taxes, the state would take over the land and they wanted to use that land or manage it responsibly to protect the forest. New York didn't know what to do with this land. They're a state. They need money. Sometimes they just sell the land to someone else. So Sargent met with representatives from the state legislature, state legislature, and other state positions to create a bill. They created the Forest Preserve. And I'm going to read a little piece of it here. The lands now or hereafter constituting the Forest Preserve shall be forever kept as wild forest lands. They shall not be sold, nor shall they be leased or taken by any corporation, public or private. The state needed money, and as a tale as old as time, this happens today in 2021, and it's going to keep happening. The state needs money, so they sell the land. So it wasn't really a preserve. Wait, Nick, you're you're telling me that the government doesn't know how to spend money well, so they constantly go back on their previous deals to make more money? Yes, that's precisely <laughs> what I'm telling you. So... They did, and they'd sell the timber to private lumber companies, so it really wasn't a preserve in the sense that we think of preserve in our modern times, even if that was the intention. But it was a first step towards the modern American view of public land. Some of the public land would be untouched, and that's what they wanted to protect. They wanted some for working and some for just being wild. So they came up with the idea that, well, we'd cut some and leave others as a park. Loggers and residents were upset at the idea of a park, saying that it's just for a park at the wealthy. Kind of like going back to the previous people, pretty much only the rich could afford to get out of the city and into the woods. So they felt this is like a class kind of thing. This is just setting up for wealthy people to have something that to enjoy that they can't. If 
I may add on to this. I mean, most people at this time, I imagine, would not own a horse or to travel such a distance to do and simply enjoy nature is that's a quite an expensive thing to do back then. Yeah. And um, the loggers were upset because they didn't have as much to log now. So in 1892, the governor of New York enacted the Adirondack Park Enabling Act, which created a state park. Some of this was controversial because you, the government of New York could sell the timber, not the land, and use that money to buy land for more parks, to preserve more land. I like that idea, but people who wanted no timber harvesting in the park were upset at this. And once again, they tried to not harvest any, but it turns out, once again, New York needed money. And then in 1885, an act was passed that would prohibit timber sales in the park, and it pretty much stayed that way. Sargent would eventually go on to die in 1927, and he has a note on his gravestone that says, Professor Sargent knew more about trees than any other living person. It'd be hard to find anyone who did more to protect trees from the vandalism of those who do not appreciate the contribution that they make to the beauty and wealth of our nation. That's a fantastic thing to remember for. If that's what you remember for, that's a quite a grander thing. So now we're going to talk about John Muir. John Muir was born 1838. He was an author, explorer, scientist, environmental philosopher, pretty much everything. He did pretty much everything. But he was an explorer primarily, I would say. That's what he wanted to do. And he did the other things to protect the land that he grew to love. He attended college and he took classes that interested him. So he took some chemistry classes, botany, geology. He never took them in order. He never graduated. He just wanted the knowledge. College really didn't interest him. And he went back in the workforce. But at work one day, he almost lost his eye. He Something got into his eye and he was temporarily blind for like five, six months. Five or six months? Jesus. After he got his vision back, he wanted to see the world. So he walked from Kentucky to Florida. He walked? Then he hopped on a boat to Cuba. He walked. He And he didn't walk along the streets. He went backwoods the entire way. Holy he shit. bushwhacked from Kentucky to Florida. Holy shit. In Florida, he was asking a guy where that boat's going. The man told him he was going to Cuba. He decided he wanted to go there, so he snuck on the boat. Eventually, he made his way back up to New York and later landed in San Francisco, which would be kind of his home base. He traveled to the Yosemite Valley, which is an area that Lincoln had set aside. Everyone had talked about this area. He was super excited to see it, so it's one of the first things he did. He became a part of the environment. People began to recognize his knowledge of the environment. He worked as a shepherd. He would watch people's sheep up on the mountain, and at the same time, he was noting what the effect the overgrazing was having on the prairies, what plants were coming back, what weren't what that was doing to the streams, the runoff, all of this he was watching out in the woods. And he wasn't really a hunter at all. For like the backwoodsman that he is, when he went out into the woods, pretty much would take his journals and a loaf of bread. He was a conservationist, but that word really didn't exist yet. So, let's see. He loved, oh, he loved reading Rolf Waldo Emerson's Transcendentalism papers, books. If you remember... This was kind of the line of thinking that was you go to nature to heal, to be a part of it. To reconnect. So he was super, yeah. 
he would often sit by a campfire and read Emerson's book all night. One day, Emerson decided, or Emerson visited San Francisco. He was going to go check out the Yosemite Valley. And every single person he met was like, you need to read, you need to meet John Muir. It's like, this man, you need to meet him. He knows everything about the valley. Muir, who's been reading Emerson's works for years, living what Emerson wrote, super excited to meet Emerson as well. Emerson met the man who carried out his philosophies. Like, he wrote about it, Muir went out and did it. They both had so much to tell each other. Emerson at this time was teaching at Harvard, and he said, you need to come and teach at Harvard as well. Muir's like, no, dude. I'm, I'm busy, bro. <laughs> like, let me be I me. I want to live out here. Muir declined because he wanted to live out in God's creation is what he said. He wanted to be out in nature. He didn't want to go, even though he knew so much and he could teach so much about the environment, he wanted to be out in it. He was a preservationist and wanted the land to be protected from man's impacts that he observed by tending sheep, just being out and making observations. And he wanted to educate people on conservations. You probably heard this quote said somewhere else, but this is his quote. I'd rather be in the mountains thinking of God than in church thinking about the mountains. Oh, yes. I definitely heard that one. I was going to say, I also, this might be a little sidebar and off track, but I completely agree with him. You find bliss in the silence rather than in the prior. For sure. And like I said, all these people are going to meet. I'm going to set up their backstory, and then we're going to talk about what they do together. The next... This sounds like Lord of the Rings and trees combined. It's like Lord of the Lord of the trees, sort of speak, of where different correlations and paths, the dwarfs, elves, humans, all meet together for one common cause. It seems very similar to the forestry. It Yeah, that's actually not a terrible comparison. Um, but now we're going to talk about America's first forester, Mike. Gifford, the official first forester. The official first forester? Gifford Pinchot, born in 1866. On one side of his family were timber barons. They made their money from timber. He comes from money, is well-educated, went to school at Yale. He, his dad asked him, would you like to be a forester at a young age? Well, that's kind of a loaded question because there's no American foresters at this time. Awesome. Forest management isn't something that's practiced here. It's a weird question. It is a weird question. But that got in Pinchot's head, and he wanted to be America's first forester. So after graduating from Yale, he went to Europe to learn about forestry from already established European systems, notably the French. And the French had a lot of hardwoods quite unsimilar to our wild American forest. Everything in Europe is pretty well managed at this time because just population, need for resources. There was no sticks littering the forest floor. He, at this time... The forests were pretty much owned by like the crown, so you couldn't, uh, peasants weren't allowed to go even pick up sticks for firewood. And he missed that wild aspect of American forest. But he learned about silviculture. Do you want to start a civil war? Because that's how you start a civil war. Not even let people start a fire. Yeah, that's a whole another thing we'll get into. We'll maybe some other time talk about the history of forest management. I know you're excited. Um, so he came back to the United States and got his first job managing the Vanderbilt estate. He managed their forest, managed harvest, protect, manage for wildlife, but it wasn't really what he wanted to do. He wanted to manage wild land, not curated land for to meet an objective of looking nice and, and stuff like that. He opened a consulting office where he would assist landowners with their forest, the first consulting forester. Uh, out of curiosity, Nick, is this the Vanderbilt who's the the steel baron? 
Yeah. Oh, geez. And he also, you know, made some political connections there, obviously. But Pinchot wanted to preserve land use for whether it be by logging or grazing. He wanted the land to be protected. But coming from a timber background, he also knew that you could benefit from the land and the land could benefit from use. And Pinchot and Mirror became friends because they both loved to explore nature. Both of them would love to go out in the woods by themselves and just spend days observing and exploring. And it, a mirror preservationist didn't want any logging or grazing at all. Pinchot wanted more controlled logging, more controlled grazing. It's a hard spot to be for Pinchot because at this time you kind of had the preservationists like Muir and you have the timber barons who want to cut everything. And he was in the middle, so he had no allies. Muir had allies on the preservationist side. You had, you'd argue the money, most of the money at this time politically was coming from the timber barons. That's big companies where the money is coming from. But public sentiment was leading towards the preservationist. Pinchot wanted to tell people that you could use the land, preserve it, but also get money from it, get resources for the country. I mean, we're building railroads. We need wood. We need houses. He was trying to show the benefits of both sides rather than choose one side completely. Yep. So... The National Forest Commission was founded, and that was the American public recognized that we wanted to do something to preserve our forest lands. Okay, now what do we do? <laughs> and who's going to do it? So the, Burn it all down, Nick. Burn it all down. So the National Forest Commission included Charles Sprague Sargent, Wolcott Gibbs, Gifford Pinchot, William Stiles, the guys I didn't talk, so William Wolcott Gibbs, president of the National Academy of Science, William Stiles, editor of Garden and Forest. They met in Brooklyn, and they were going to travel west to look at land. They're going to choose land that should be preserved and discuss who who's going to preserve it. These were their objectives. One, is it desirable and practical to preserve from fire and to maintain permanently as forest lands those portions of the public domain now bearing wood growth for the supply of timber? Is it something we can do? Are they going to be lost to fire? Can we? Is this feasible? Second, how far does the influence of forest upon climate, soil, and water conditions make desirable a policy of forest conservation in regions where the public domain is principally situated? How does forest management affect soil, climate? Is it going to help farmland underneath, hurt farmers? What's going to happen? And the biggest question is what specific legislation should be enacted to remedy the evils now confessedly existing. We saw the massive overharvesting. There is a problem. The American public has recognized a problem. The legislation legislature has recognized a problem. But how do you solve that problem? That's the question. I have no idea. How do we solve the problem? That's what they're trying to figure out. So Charles Sargent and some of the other people went west to go look at, appraise these lands, basically, come up with a plan. They traveled the country, viewing areas that could or should be protected. At night, they would debate the merits of what they saw. Is it worth preserving? Should it be left to private? Who would manage it? There's no forest service at this time. There's no park service. There's no Bureau of Land Management employees. Like we said, Gifford Pinchot wanted to be the first forester. There's no one else out there. Some didn't want federal control. Should the states control it? Who's going to be in control of all this land? Could this be something the army takes up? These were all arguments that were taking place every night in this group. There's arguments to keep the ground and sell the timber, to use that money to protect land similar um, to the Forest Service and Park Service today. So like now our National Forest revenue from that goes to help fund the National Park Service, which is all preservation. So you got two sides that are working together. You know, you sac not sacrifice because 
you know, planting trees, the trees come back, but you're preserving one ground, you're cutting trees somewhere else to pay to preserve trees in a more keystone environment, somewhere that's very, uh, whether it be beautiful or ecologically important, we're going to protect that area. So how, how do they even start? Well, they wanted to create a new branch that would just start collecting data. You know, we can't have scientific management of land if we don't have the data to back it up. This new branch would also be able, they'd have to fight fire. They'd have to defend from timber poachers, people coming to steal the land. So everyone really didn't get agree on, like Sergeant, the leader, wanted the army to be in control. and wanted officers in the military to be foresters. They figured they'd be an impartial governing body. Pinchot wanted it to be an elite group of scientists, botanists, who had a connection to the land, who understood the effects of harvest, of uh, just erosion and streams and the ecology. And other people wanted to be just, this is a preservation, nothing comes, nothing happens at all. And other people wanted to just sell to private landowners. But luckily the commission, which was sent out to go talk about the establishment of public land, they did achieve a consensus over the need to expand the number and size of forest reserves. They swelled the, they wrote a draft that says we should expand the number of acres by 21,000 acres, basically. Um, sorry, 21 million acres. Yeah, that's a big difference there. Yeah, my bad there. Um, so that would be, they wrote that letter to Grover Cleveland in 1897 that recommended that 13 forest reserves be established and suggested that they should be proclaimed on February 22nd, George Washington's birthday. President Cleveland agreed and protected the 21 uh, million acres to the dismay of the western states. And as these guys are going around exploring, like I said, they're having discussions. And there's another quote you might recognize so there, the Forest Reserve Commission is looking out over this cliff at, I forget what lake it is, but a tarantula crawls up on one of the rocks and Pinchot goes to squash it. Mirror says, that tarantula has every right to be here, has more right to be here than you do. And then kind of Pinchot is like, yeah, I guess you're right. So these guys would go out and like Pinchot and Mirror would go way out in the woods and just talk and observe things. And Pinchot, because of this, tended to lean a little bit more towards the preservationist. But then he'd come back and talk to some of the guys who are more industrial. But he wanted to establish a scientific aspect. A lot of people wanted the army to do it. That was the prevailing opinion that the military take over leading the forest. So we still didn't settle really who was going to be in charge of these reserves. We just established the reserve. And then something awesome happened, Mike. Do you know what that is? No, but I'm assuming trees and capitalism. I'm talking about a bull moose president. <gasps> Our favorite president? Theodore Roosevelt became president in 1901. Hallelujah, we're saved. In 1905, Roosevelt, who was a good friend of Gifford Pinchot's, or Gifford Pinchot was a good friend of Roosevelt, either way, um, Gifford Pinchot was on what they'd call Roosevelt's uh, tennis cabinet, the people he would like to box with, play tennis with, do all sorts of physical stuff with, not his official cabinet, but the people he would go to for advice and stuff. And Pinchot loved to tell Roosevelt all about trees and forestry. So in 1905, Roosevelt helped his friend and signed the Forest Reserve Act that created the Forest Service and appointed Gifford Pinchot to lead it. Roosevelt established numerous wildlife reserves and parks and is probably the most famous conservationist I mean, I would argue of all time. He's first on my list. So Pinchot had all these acres, and he needed foresters. He helped at the School of Yale to establish a school of forestry, churning out new foresters, 
and these people were the first foresters. So each region would have a higher level forester all under Pinchot, and they would manage for reducing wildfire. They would manage, they would be out inspecting timber sales, making sure no one was taking too much timber, making sure basically they were, they had a lot of jobs. They were surveyors, they were firefighters, they were police officers. Uh, if during, if a wildfire came, they would round up loggers or drunks in the bar and go out and fight fire. They would, they were also collecting data on streams and trees and just everything. They're very busy and they're oftentimes completely by themselves. There's a, in the book, The Big Burn, it talks about how these foresters go out to these logging camps, these logging towns, and basically they're the only law there. And this one forester telegraphed, I need help. There's two ugly prostitutes camping on land that's they shouldn't be on. And the telegram back just came back and said, find prettier whores, basically. It's your problem. Deal with it. <laughs> so a lot of these guys coming from Yale, they weren't the Gifford Pinchot's mirrors, the backwoods types. So some of them are like, this isn't what I signed up for. They thought this was going to be an office job or whatever, something easy. But this was very demanding. And not everyone made, uh, made it. But this is what Pinchot wanted. He was America's first forester. Uh, and we did, I'm not going to completely talk about it too much. because We talked about it in the smoke management I forgot what we call it, the wildfire episode about the 1910 fires. In 1910, a thousand-year fire event came through, burned from Montana through Idaho into Washington, burned three states, terrible fires. And the enemies of the Forest Service saw this as, well, there were no big fires like that before the Forest Service came around. And there were, we just didn't have the records and the knowledge at the time to know that this was regularly scheduled every thousand years, just nature's patterns, that you would have uh, the, a drought with lightning storm and winds. That's just one of those things. But because of this failure of the Forest Service to stop these fires, people were really picking them apart. Pinchot would continue to argue for sustainable use and that the Forest Service is helping everyone out. One of his most famous quotes is, the purpose of conservation is the greatest good for the greatest number of people now and in the future. It's not about immediate satisfaction, but it's about preserving the land for Americans through time. And he, like I said, was in the middle. He was, he had some times where he'd side with the preservationist, and other times he would side with the timber people. Like, he recognized the value of cutting trees, but he didn't want to see, like, an entire forest clear cut. So, he's kind of at odds, but that's, I think he's right. I mean, he's uh, probably the closest for being a hundred years in the past, his ideology aligns more with the modern ideology than pretty much anyone we've talked about today for forest management. All right, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. Still talking about an employee of the Forest Service, but Mike, you might recognize this figure of forest philosophy. I'm talking about Smokey the Bear. <gasps> I know Smokey the Bear. Only you can prevent wildfires. Smokey the Bear was created in 1944 out of a need to protect American forests during World War II. Timber is a valuable resource, especially at the time spruce, a very light wood, helped our planes get an advantage. He's seen as a symbol of the Forest Service. Only you can prevent forest fires, like you said, Mike. At one point, he was an actual bear that was rescued from a fire. The news found out about it, and he became Smokey the Bear. He moved to Washington, and many people came to see him. And so many people wrote the real Smokey the Bear letters. He received about 1,300 letters a week. He's a modern symbol of forest management. But he, like you said, Mike, you said 
to prevent wildfires. He's been updated because now Smokey the Bear is trying to teach people the benefits of prescribed burns. It used to say, only you can prevent fires. But now we're trying to say, okay, prescribed fires are good. So now Spokey's trying to go kind of back on his words and teach people that not all burning is bad. But I would say Smokey the Bear is kind of pivotal in that more so than Gifford Pinchot and these guys, he brought conservation into the mainstream. Like this is something people would regularly talk about. Yes, it went from no fire to, hey, fire for the professionals. But hey, try not to start a fire. Put your fire pit out. Try not to smoke in the woods, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Now we're going to talk about Aldo Leopold. He's a hunter-trapper, originally born in 1886, and then became a forester in Michigan, working for the Forest Service. He began to see humans as part of the environment, not dominating it, where even Gifford Pinchot saw humans as dominating, controlling, that we were the dominant pressure. Aldo Leopold began to see it as we're just a piece in the puzzle. He began to see nature reserves that should be nature reserves, not hunting grounds, as many people saw them. They'd be healthy ecosystems that will help the surrounding ecosystems. He was the first wildlife manager, and as his time uh, killing coyotes and bears, he began to see the negative detrimental impacts of wiping out those populations. He noted the system that we know today called trophic cascade, where the removal of one species has a detrimental effect on all other species. Um, he wrote a book called, or a collection of essays called The Sand County Almanac. And it basically is the, the modern reference for the ethics of land management that we look at his, well, it's called The Land Ethic in the a Sand County Almanac. I'm looking at my copy here, and I just went back and reread as well. I'm going to read a little piece from it that I think is important. The ordinary citizen today assumes that science knows what makes the community clock tick. The scientist is equally sure that he does not. He knows that the biotic mechanism is so complex that its workings may never be fully understood. And then he also writes, Conservation is getting nowhere because it's incompatible with our Abrahamic concept of land. We abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. There is no other way for land to survive the impact of mechanized man, nor for us to reap from it the aesthetic harvest it is capable under science of contributing to culture. That's a quite a beautiful quote. Yeah, and um, I really liked this quote by the uh, Kurt Main about Leopold, and he said, the tension between the utilitarian and preservationist views exist within Leopold. He held both a mirror-like appreciation of nature, but also a Pinchot-like intent to use nature wisely. He was the combination of both of those men, which makes sense. I mean, he works for the Forest Service. He wanted to, like Pinchot said, the greatest good for the greatest number of people now and in the future. So we got one more person, and this is a person who, based on my what I do for a living as a forester, is seen as hippies, the enemy. And she, she's not the enemy. What she did was important. What we did as a response, maybe we went too far, but that's a debate for another podcast. But Rachel Carson, she's a biologist from 1907 to 1964. She's also a good writer, and her articles did well. She worked for the Bureau of Fishing Game, but at that time, and not too different from today, there's still not that many jobs for fisheries biologists. She then became a full-time writer, and she published a book called Silent Spring. Silent Spring launched the modern-day environmental movement we know today. Silent Spring focused on DDT, 
which is a pesticide that can build up, originally used for uh, control of mosquitoes, but it's over-applied, and it, we didn't know much at the time. It built up in, like, uh, what's his name? Leopold talked about with Trophic Cascade, it, or not Trophic Cascade. It was um, biological magnification. So DDT gets in the insects which the fish eat. The fish eat all the insects. The DDT builds up in the fish. The predators eat the insects. Then the higher predators eat that. So by the time you get to your apex predators, like your eagles and stuff, there's so much DDT built up, it doesn't allow their eggs to hatch right. And so you have reduced population of eagles. Everything is connected to everything. Exactly. And because of this movement, it it talked about pesticides and uh, habitat loss as well and established like you said the modern day conservation movement we now have we're, we're still back to that same thing right we got the preservationist and we got the timber industry and i think the timber industry is closer to the gifford pinchot now i mean than it was in the past there's a lot of four or family companies that manage the ground for time after time generation after generation you know we're not in it to cut and sell we manage the same piece of ground. And there's always been those preservationists, and there always will be. And they've always been at odds, and we always will be. But what Rachel Carson did was expose, at the time, there was bad stuff going on. Like D No one is sitting around saying DDT should just be sprayed willy-nilly to kill mosquitoes. Every s single thing that humans do, we started doing wrong, right? Figure out as we go, pretty much. You never, never really know. Yeah. So... And now that led to Nixon, bringing it back to Nixon, that's weird, uh, to, who created the EPA and Clean Water Act to protect the environment in response to this book. And then not long after that, the Endangered Species Act. But the scars are still felt on both sides. You know, the conservationists still feel that the timber industry is getting away with too much. And the timber industry feels that the conservationist laws are too regulatory. And no one's really happy. And this it is a continuous... This is an issue that continues to be discussed of the role of public lands, the role of forestry. Do we manage our forests? Do we let things wild? And every year we bring this debate up for a month when fires get big and we talk about public land and land management and then we forget about it. But this is something that's going to affect all of us forever. We need, humans have never stopped using wood. We build houses out of it, bookshelves, everything. We need to get our wood from somewhere. And I agree with Gifford Pinchot. We need to have the, we need to act in a way to, to preserve the greatest good for the greatest number of people now and in the future. And that includes protecting the environment, saving, like we talked about with Trophic Cascade, the loss of one species can have detrimental effects on others. There is a way to do all of this responsibly. We can harvest timber and not contribute to habitat loss. We can protect waters and not, not cut up against them, leave a buffer to reduce erosion. We can burn hillsides to reduce fire. But these aren't the conversations we're having. The conversations we're having is clear-cut versus no clear-cut. It's yes or no. It's black and white. It's not a nuanced conversation. And forest philosophy is something that affects all of us. So I implore you guys to discuss what you think the role of public land should be. Should we, like the way we have it set up now, national parks don't get touched. I think that's pretty much a given. But national forest, which is designated to provide timber to the country, provide jobs and money to help conserve the national parks, should we turn to all those national parks, which is the way we're heading? Or should we still do some management where we can get money out of them to preserve other parks? Because if there's one thing that shows up time and time again in here, 
the government needs money. Even they pass these bills that say we're going to not harvest. And then as soon as they need money, they go back in. So I, we got to pay for the conservation, the preservation somehow. Even the preservation that we have of, you know, people go to Yellowstone, the someone that the roads and the bathrooms that people drive on, that money has to come from somewhere. And I think we should do it from responsible land use. But if not, I'd love to hear why you think we shouldn't or what you think we should do if you have a solution. Maybe a more nuanced conversation. Like one of the things that Pinchot said is that each area is different, which is why there's different regions. You wouldn't take a forester from back east to put him out west because the environment is completely different. So what works somewhere might not work somewhere else. So let me know what you think. It can never hurt to have a discussion about a topic. Mike, what do you think after listening to me rant on about trees? Well, Mr. Lorax, I think it's about balance of if you have a heavy season where the trees are overwhelming, you want to prevent wildfires and a healthy ecosystem, you log more and then you create those profits and you reuse those profits for X amount of reason. It's a very dynamic situation depending on weather, climate, and situation. But again, I think it all comes down to balance of yin and yang of have our forest that we try to remain untouched, but yet keep it responsible, keep it a non-dangerous society, and yet still use it as a profit to benefit both nature and society. I think it's possible to balance both, but it's definitely a conversation piece, that's for sure. And I'm curious, we can cut this out, just kind of bullshitting here. Before we started this podcast, how much did you know about public lands? Mainly from camping. Like, you have to be two miles from a road, you're, you can't, you're, you can't stay there for more than 14 days. Um, I know a lot of the I know the ammunition taxes all go to national parks. Uh, I know hunting tags go to preserves. I know a little bit about where the money goes, but not the history of it. I know very little of the history of it. Leave off with uh, a quote here from The Land Ethic by Aldo Leopold that we talked about. He's talking about the problem between people not understanding conservation and people who want to conserve and people who want to use. The usual answer to this dilemma is more conservation education. No one will debate this, but is it certain that only the volume of education needs stepping up? Is something lacking in the content as well? Yeah, it all comes down to education. And out of curiosity, Nick, where could they find if they wanted to argue about trees and land management? You can find us on YouTube, and Instagram is what I'll be checking more. And again... As someone who works out in the woods, if I don't get back to you right away on Instagram, it's because I am working out in the woods. So, sorry. Thanks for listening to the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We rarely finish a podcast without missing a point we wanted to bring up, so let us know what we forgot. And if you have a topic you want us to talk about, let us know at Backyard Philosophy on Instagram 